The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight, looking at Mark 10, 32 to 45, a passage that sets a strong contrast between Jesus' goal and expectations for life and his disciples' goals and expectations for life. So let's read together from Mark 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We know that these are words you have spoken and you have written to us. We pray that your Spirit would bring these words to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after several conversations that Jesus has had with different parties at the beginning of chapter 10, we're picking up the story tonight with Jesus on the road. He's on the road heading towards Jerusalem. And I sort of picture I don't know when I read this story, picture us zooming in in maybe a a scene in the movie catching up with Jesus and and the disciples. And and you see the twelve kind of sauntering along slowly along the road, talking, maybe maybe laughing or joking. Somewhat of a a motley array of of men, perhaps. There may have been more than just the twelve with the disciples 
following him here. But as this group walks along the road, they, they suddenly become aware that something is different about the attitude and about the manner of Jesus. Jesus is walking on ahead of them, the passage says. And something about the manner in which he's walking ahead of them strikes them. Maybe it was a, a particularly quiet focus, or maybe it was a determination, perhaps a, a sense of, of purpose about Jesus as he moves towards Jerusalem. Because we hear that the, those following Jesus were amazed and even afraid. There's nothing Jesus said here to make them amazed or afraid. It's not like they're reacting to something Jesus said. And it, it certainly doesn't seem that just the fact that he's heading to Jerusalem would amaze them or make them afraid because he's done it many times before. And he's done it before in times of great danger where the disciples said, well, if you're going to Jerusalem, we might as well go die with you because we know it's going to be dangerous there. So, so heading to Jerusalem isn't something unique that would amaze or, or make them afraid. And so, but there's something about Jesus, about his manner, something about him as he walks on ahead of them that strikes them. And they suddenly realize that there's something about Jesus that is significant, something about his purpose and the, his attitude that, that is significant. And, and it's no wonder. It's no wonder that Jesus would have an attitude or a manner or a determination that would be striking because Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And when he arrives at Jerusalem, he's going to enter the city on a donkey and he's going to be right in the middle of Passion Week. Jesus here in this narrative, in this passage, is one week from the cross. And he's headed to Jerusalem for the last time. He knows as he heads toward the city that when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be there to do what he has come to do, to suffer and to die for his people. You know how it is when you're driving to a particular event that, that is significant in, in some way. And your mind is completely wrapped up in what's going to happen when you get there. Maybe you're, maybe you're headed to the, the courthouse to protest a speeding ticket. And you're wondering, well, what's going to happen? Is the officer going to show up? Is he going to let me off? Will there be mercy? Am I going to have to pay a greater fine? And your mind's just spinning, wondering what's going to happen. Or, or maybe, maybe you're headed into the doctor's office. The doctor has called you about recent tests and summoned you to the office. And as you drive there, your mind is spinning. What's the diagnosis? What are the options? What plans is he going to propose? What's going to happen? And, and so when someone's wrapped up, their, their minds are, are focused on that. They're distracted. They're, they're set on what's going to happen. And, and I, I can't help but wonder if Jesus was not wrapped in thought, set as he walks towards Jerusalem, knowing all that is about to take place as he heads to this city for the last time and begins to enter in to the week of suffering and his death. His, his disciples respond with amazement and fear. And maybe Jesus, sensing that they're amazed or sensing that they realize that, that, that something's going on in, in his mind and his life, takes them aside and gives them a, a perfectly clear explanation of why he's so distracted. Or, or if not distracted, set, focused, determined. He says to them, see, here's the explanation, here's why, here's what you're seeing in me, see. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to be flogged, and, uh, to be flogged mocked, spit upon, 
and then killed. This is a perfectly clear explanation that Jesus gives the disciples of what's about to happen. But we know that Jesus, this is the the third time that the heading in this section of your Bible probably says Jesus foretells his death a third time. It's not the first time Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to, to die and be handed over to death, and yet the disciples don't seem to, to get it. And as clear as this explanation is from Jesus as to describing uh, what the disciples are seeing, they, they still don't seem to have a clear idea of what's going ha- to happen and what's about to come a pass in Jesus' life. And I wonder, maybe sometimes I think, you know, come on guys, he's only told you three times that he's going to go die. When are you going to realize he's going to go die? But I think maybe we can excuse the, the disciples a little bit Because remember, the disciples firmly believe and Jesus has affirmed to them that He is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And if you think about terms of death and resurrection for the Messiah, these are terms that were were not at all in the vocabulary or expectations of Israel. You know, if if I were to come to you and say, well, tomorrow I'm going to go fly and gravity isn't going to hold me down, you would assume I was speaking metaphorically. And that I was, I, was, I was describing in some metaphor something that was going to happen to me tomorrow. You were not assumed that I was actually going to fly. Well, the disciples, here's the Messiah. The Messiah, as every good Israelite knows, doesn't die. That doesn't happen. And the Messiah especially doesn't get handed over to the Gentiles because the Messiah is coming to restore the kingdom to Israel. So death at the hand of the Gentiles, well, well that, that doesn't happen to the Messiah. And, and resurrection Resurrection is something that happens on the last day, not something that's going to happen in the life of someone you know, we know and are interacting with now. So the disciples' minds immediately assume, well, here Jesus is telling us something, some sort of a metaphor, something like, I will dis- destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Surely that was a metaphor for something, right? Or I'm the, lo- I'm the door by which the sheep enter. Well, he's not a little door, literal door. This is, this is describing something about him, right? And so the disciples debate and they wonder, what it is that Jesus is talking about, and we we see that reaction whenever Jesus describes what is about to happen to him. So here we are on the road. Jesus, amazing his disciples by his manner, giving them a clear expectation of what's going to happen, that he will be handed over for death, but then he will rise again. Well, this brings us to verse 35, and as we move into verse 35... I think we begin to see specifically where Jesus' goals and expectations are vastly different from his disciples' goals and expectations. As we go into verse 35, it seems that James and John, whatever they thought dying and rising meant, they think from other scriptures we know they weren't exactly clear, they didn't expect him to actually be killed and to rise again, but whatever they think, they, they assume that the combination of Jesus' attitude and his manner and his descriptions and what he say is going to happen, they assume he must be getting close to bringing his kingdom to pass. And so for James and John, if his kingdom's about to come, if this is the moment Jesus is going to restore Israel, then we better make our move. The kingdom's at hand, rewards have been promised, You can imagine James and John saying, we're on the inner circle, so let's get in and ask for the really good seats while we can. And James and John say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And it's, I think, amazing in some ways that Jesus doesn't stop them right there and say, whoa, 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 
we want you to do whatever you, you ask us to do. You know, that, that's not how this relationship works. But I love how Jesus says, well, what would you like me to do for you? He, it's, almost, it's almost like laying the trap. Like, well, let's see what's in your heart. I know what's in your heart, but let's, let's let you state what's in your heart, and we'll let things play out here. And so James and John, James and John see if they can secure the thrones on Jesus' right hand and left hand. Grant to us, they say, that we can seat one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. What a, what a question. Well, as we work through verses 38 through 45, this is Jesus' response. Jesus' response to James and John. And I want us to notice four things. Four things that I want us to notice about Jesus' response to James and John's request. First, and, and briefly, notice the first words that Jesus says. You do not know what you're asking. What a great, what a great first response. James and John thought they knew. They know what kingdoms are like. They've seen kings, governors, princes. They know what it's like to sit on the right hand and the left hand of the king and prince. So they think they've got a pretty good idea of what they're asking. You become king, we sit on either side of you, and it works out great for us. But we have a little bit of perspective, and if we think about what happens to Jesus and about his words, we can say there's a number of things that James and John have not considered. For instance, we know the story of the cross. The cross is very literally the key moment where Jesus secures his kingdom. And I would guess that James and John would not have wanted to be on Jesus' right hand and left hand at the moment of the cross. Because the right hand and left hand of Jesus at the moment of the cross were reserved for criminals who were crucified next to him. Maybe, we, maybe, maybe James and John were thinking when Jesus comes again in the full glory of his kingdom, but Jesus has said in his parables elsewhere that when he comes to bring the kingdom, he's going to separate his sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. And on the right hand will be those who go to eternal life and the left hand will be those who go to eternal punishment. So I wonder... I wonder if James and John had discussed who would get the right hand and who got the left hand. Because that matters in that case. Or I wonder if they're thinking about Jesus reigning in glory, but when Jesus reigns in glory, he himself will be at the right hand of his Father forever. And certainly that's a position that James and John would never dare to request in the place of their Father. It becomes so clear that James and John don't know what they're asking Even from our vantage point, we can see that that is clear. But I can't help but feel some sympathy for them, and I can't help but think how many times Jesus must listen to my prayers and hear our requests, and he must think, you do not know what you're asking. How many times have have I prayed for something, have we prayed for something, and God has answered our prayers in radically different ways? or perhaps not answered them at all, we think. But how ridiculous must some of our requests look from the vantage point of eternity? From the vantage point of God's perspective of knowing His grand and perfect plan, how many times must He look at the things that I pray for and long for and say, you do not know what you're asking? For here is God whose purposes and plans are perfect, who does only what is good, who is faithful, to work out the sovereign plan that He has had from the beginning of time and who works out His sovereign plan for our good and His glory. There is so much that I do not know, 
so much that I ask for that I do not understand because I don't have the full knowledge of God. And so Jesus' first statement here reminds me to pray with humility. To pray with humility and pray with an attitude that starts and ends with a steadfast trust in the plan and the will and the love of God who does all things well for his people. James and John did not know what they're asking. I love that reminder. But second, second, notice how Jesus challenges James and John's expectations for what it means to be part of the kingdom. James and John think that If we're part of the kingdom, and we're going to be leaders in the kingdom, that must involve some thrones, and ideally some thrones right on the right hand and left hand of Jesus. But notice the next thing Jesus says. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Both the reference to drinking the cup and being baptized here are references to Jesus' suffering and death. And certainly not the first time that that drinking the cup would be uh, used to refer to to suffering. Jesus is picking up on several Old Testament passages here that talk about drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin. Isaiah 51.17, for instance, God says, Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, for you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. Jesus also says in, in the book of John when He's in Gethsemane, As he's headed toward the cross, he says, I am going to drink the cup that my Father has given me to drink. So drinking the cup here is clearly a a reference to Jesus' suffering and death. And, And we know, as we spell out the story, Jesus is asking them, are you able to join me? Are you able to join me in suffering and death that the Father gives us? Baptism, too, refers to undergoing suffering and judgment. Even if we think about Christian baptism in Romans 6, 3, we're told that our baptism is a, is a sign, is a, is a symbol of, of us being united to Jesus in His death. In His death. We're buried with Him in baptism. Jesus is going to have suffering wash over Him and cover Him. And our baptism is a picture of being united with Him in this, in this suffering. And so Jesus' immediate response to the disciples is to say, you think... Being part of the kingdom is about thrones and glory. Being part of my kingdom involves suffering and death. And so if you want to be leaders in my kingdom, if you want to be on thrones in my kingdom, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism I am about to be baptized with? And John and James say we are able, and and, and Scripture doesn't tell us the tone in which they said this. And, and And I wonder... Was it a sort of, of course we're able, sort of Peter-like answer of, yeah, bring it on, we'll do anything. Is it, is it a sober? Oh, oh. Leadership in the kingdom involves suffering? And is it, is it a yes, we are willing and able to do that? We, we're not told. We're not told. I, I think we do know that it's not a fully informed answer. They don't know all that God is going to call them to. And Jesus affirms. He says, yes, the cup I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized with. Here Jesus is affirming to them, you disciples are to expect in my kingdom suffering, suffering and death along with me. That is what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. 
And this is, this is right in line with the expectations that the rest of the New Testament gives us. What does it look like to be part of God's kingdom? What does it look like to be united to Christ? Well, it looks like being joined to Him not only in His glory and His life forever, but also in His suffering. You might think of Romans eight sixteen to 17 where Paul writes, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Do you see how closely Jesus, Paul here ties suffering with Jesus to our, our, our glorification, our, our resurrection with Jesus? Or maybe you think of Philippians 3, 8, where Paul says again, I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and that I may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Or perhaps in some of the uh, the words that are most puzzling at times in Philippians 1, it has been granted to you. So this is almost like word, this is the language of gifting. It has been given to you as a gift, granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but that you should also suffer for his sake. Over and over throughout the New Testament, Jesus' words are reiterated that being part of the kingdom involves suffering. At the core of the kingdom is suffering with Christ. The full expectation of Scripture matches Jesus' expectation. All who put their faith in Christ are united to Christ. And that means we're united to Christ in His life forever. And it also means that we are united to Christ in His suffering and death. And just as we look forward to actually experiencing Christ's life forever, we should expect to actually experience suffering as we walk through this sin-broken world just like our Savior did. I think this has to be one of the most powerful questions that Jesus asks. Do you want to be part of my kingdom? If so, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with me in my baptism? Because becoming a Christian is not about finding a life of fun, happiness, and protection from pain. It's an invitation to join Christ's pattern to join Christ's pattern of life, to live a life that is often full of weariness. It often involves being hurt by sin. It often involves denying myself and my comforts or desires. It often involves suffering the effects of a sinful world. But as we walk through a sin-broken world and suffer as Christ suffered, it will also then involve being raised up on the last day to live a glorious life with Christ forever. It's an invitation that certainly our culture would shrink from because for our culture, suffering is the worst thing imaginable. We do anything to avoid suffering. But it's an invitation that is so worth accepting because as we walk with Christ in fellowship with His sufferings, we have hope of living with Christ in fellowship with His life and His glory and His kingdom forever. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know whether some of you may be in the throes of suffering now as you walk through a sin-broken world. I don't know whether you are still feeling the hurt of suffering that is past or if you still have suffering to come. But take heart, because suffering now is how the kingdom comes. 
We suffer in union with Christ, together with Christ, in the full joy and expectation that we will be rescued and resurrected and live in glory forever in union with our Savior Christ as well. Jesus confronts the expectations of his disciples. These are the first two things we see. Third, third, I want us to notice in this passage how Jesus responds to the attitude and the goals of all 12 disciples in verses 42 to 44. It's interesting here that when Jesus talks to the disciples about their their goals of, of getting thrones for themselves, he doesn't just address James and John. He addresses all 12 disciples. And why? Because as soon as the other 10 disciples hear it, they become indignant at James and John. And perhaps I'm Perhaps I'm reading through the lines a little bit of the text, but you can see the other ten disciples horrified that James and John would ask this and think, how dare they ask that question that they would get the throne on the right hand and the left. But I think we're to assume here and hear from this that the ten are just upset that James and John thought of it first. And any one of the ten would have gladly requested the throne on the right hand or left hand of Jesus if only they had thought of it before them. It's like, it's like any smart kid, any smart child who looks around and sees that their sibling asked for the last scoop of ice cream and got it. And they're horrified and they say, that's not fair, they got the last scoop of ice cream. But of course, they would have asked for the same thing if they'd thought of it first. And our hearts really aren't after biblical fairness and ice cream proportions, we're after getting what we want. And I think we can hear behind this Jesus confronting the heart of all 12 of the disciples. The heart that is seeking the reward and the glory of being part of the kingdom. And so Jesus responds to all 12 of the disciples. And I think, I think it's worth noting in Jesus' response that he does in this, in this comment, in this comparison that he makes, he does, I think, assume or indicate that the, the 12 will be leaders in the kingdom of God. He compares them to rulers and the Gentiles. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but it shall not be so among you. And the comparison is, if you are going to be leaders in the kingdom of God, you shall not copy the pattern of the leaders in the Gentile world, because the pattern of the kingdom of God is different than the pattern of this world. In God's kingdom... Those who are leaders are not those who exercise authority or lord it over others or expect things from others. In God's kingdom, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave, the slave of all. Now, these verses are, are popular verses in, in books on Christian leadership. Almost any book that you would read on Christian leadership would look to these verses and say Christian leadership copies the pattern of Christ. It's servant leadership. That's what we see from Christ here. And I think that's a helpful comment, but I want to make sure that we don't miss the heart of what Jesus is saying. Because I think it's important to note out that Jesus isn't laying out a new path to success or prestige. He's saying, he's saying he's, um, when he says this, he says, This is supposed to be our heart, a heart of service. He's not saying, okay, disciples, look, if you really want to be successful as a leader, you should serve your employees, serve those around you. And if you do, then you'll be a really successful leader. 
He's not saying serve those and honor those around you and then you'll be raised to the high position of leadership. And sometimes I think the way some of our Christian leadership books take these verses, it's almost like you serve those around you and then you'll be a really great leader and rise to to position of, 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 of prestige and success. And I want us to make sure we're hearing Jesus' heart. These are not words to tell us how to get into better leadership positions. Jesus is addressing the heart and saying, if you are a leader in the kingdom of God, then our heart is legitimately and fully caring about others more than ourselves. Our goal is to consider and care about and serve and honor other people, not ourselves. And we don't do that as a means for getting reward or prestige or good opinion for ourselves. We do it because we care about that person and we lay down our lives as our Savior laid down His You can see Jesus' comment that if even the Son of God Himself came to spend His life in serving others for their sake and for their redemption, then how much more should we, who have been created by God and by the Son of God, be willing to sacrifice our lives for the sake of others, for the sake of God's people? And I think the idea of Christians serving others is certainly not new to any one of us in this room. No one here is surprised to hear Jesus say that Christians ought to serve others. But it is probably, and and because of that maybe, it's hard for us to grasp how shocking this statement would be to Jesus' disciples. But I wonder if maybe we ought to be more shocked than we are. The statement is that we are to be a servant and a slave of all. Now think for a second what a slave was. Put yourself in the mindset of the ancient world and a slave. A slave is not someone who serves every once in a while. A servant or a slave isn't someone who chooses to help others a lot of the time, but then chooses not to help others when when they need a little more time for themselves. A servant is not someone who says, well, on you know, I, I served four times this week, so I'm gonna take the weekend off. A servant A slave is someone whose entire life is defined by and spent serving others. Their life was completely spent and oriented around serving others. That's what their life was. It was the purpose of their life. It was their complete life. And so I wonder if we ought to be a little bit more shocked when we hear Jesus say we are to be a slave of all. I was reading a book on student leadership recently with some of the students in our youth group, and I came across this statement by a college-age girl. She said this. She said, I realize that so much of the time I think of myself as a leader who serves instead of defining my leadership as serving all the time. When I thought of Jesus as our model leader and servant, I felt challenged to start striving to make serving a lifestyle not something I do every once in a while. I think that's well said. It's well said. And I'm convinced that I have often served others and then checked the I served others box and then I was good for a while. You know, maybe next time I had to check all the boxes I could serve again. But this doesn't mean doing things for others when it fits our schedule or doing things for others when it fits our preferred energy level or doing things for others that are friends of ours that we happen to like and they'll do things for us in return means to live a life that is defined by being the slave of all. 
Now, I think it's worth a little caveat to say in our, in our age of globalism and of internet access, we have access and we know of the needs of millions and billions of people all around the world. And it is certainly not the case that Jesus' call means we have to try to meet the needs of every person that we ever hear of. So that as we read every news story and know of every need of every person on every continent, and every, we don't, we're not the ones responsible to meet every single need. But it does mean that the call to serve is more comprehensive than just helping when we feel like it, or helping when it's convenient, or helping when it serves a particular purpose. Jesus' call is to live a life that is defined by and filled by serving each other. It is marked by such a deep care and compassion for each other that we spend our lives for their sake. At the heart of Jesus' comment is a heart that is deeply concerned for others, not ourselves. And I think that if our heart is deeply concerned for others, then serving will not be such a chore and a burden, but it will be something that we delight and desire to do because we care about God's people, just like Jesus did. And of course, that will be wearying. It will be tiring. It will be difficult at times. And of course, we will not be able to do everything that the Son of God was able to do. But at the heart, Jesus is calling us not to be served, but to serve as he did. Well, fourthly, finally, and very briefly, I don't want us to miss Jesus' final statement in verse 45. Jesus' final statement is this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Why? To give his life as a ransom for many. I don't want us to miss the joy of this last statement. What did Jesus come to do? He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, listen to what J.C. Ryle said, the commentator said about this verse. He said this, This statement, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, is one of those expressions that ought to be carefully treasured up in the minds of every true Christian. When Jesus died, he died for us. When he suffered, he suffered in our stead. When he hung on the cross, he hung there as our substitute. When his blood flowed, it was the price of our souls. So let all who trust in Christ take comfort in this thought. It is true that we are sinners, but thanks be to God. Christ has paid a full and complete ransom for us. Isn't that a beautiful thought to be treasured by every true Christian? Don't miss the glory of what Jesus came to do. His expectations for how the kingdom would come and his goals and his pattern for what leadership in the kingdom looked like were so different from the goals and expectations of his disciples. Because his vision, his expectation, his goal was a deadly but life-giving leadership which led to the salvation of all of our souls. And he calls us to join him as servants for the sake of others. Last comment is two weeks ago at our missions conference, J.G. Zellner was our evening speaker. And I so appreciated J.G. Zellner as, as he stood up here and so calmly but so beautifully said, he said this, Jesus is so admirable. Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus is so worthy. And these are such fitting words to end with when we're reminded of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came 
to give his life as a ransom for you and I. He is so admirable. He is so wonderful. He is so worthy. So may our delight be in him as we heed his call to follow his example of serving as members of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, what what a joyful reminder of who you are and what you came to do. That you came to walk through being spit upon, mocked, flogged, and going to death. That you might give your life completely. That you might live it and lay it down for the sake of others, for the sake of us. May we treasure this up. Treasure this up. That though we are sinners, Christ hath given his life as a ransom for us. And may in our joy of who you are and what you've done, may we eagerly follow your example, not to be served, but to serve, to be the slave of all as members of your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.